Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Today, I'm very delighted to be speaking with Dr. Ray Gurendi. You might know his name. He's been a familiar face on EWTN, on television, on radio. I've listened to some of his shows, watched his shows, and he is a clinical psychologist, an author, a professional speaker, and national radio and television host. His radio show is The Doctor Is In, and it can be heard on over 440 stations and on Sirius XM Channel 130. His TV show is Living Right with Dr. Ray, and that's on EWTN. He is now the author of a book called Jesus, the Master Psychologist, published by Sophia Institute Press, and we'll speak with Dr. Ray about that book today. So welcome to How They Love Mary, Dr. Ray. Thanks, Father. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's wonderful to speak with you, and uh, I mentioned uh, right away when we started talking earlier that I've watched you for a long time, I've known your name, and so uh, I'm a priest in Green Bay, and I'm pretty sure you've come and spoke at the Estovir conferences in the past as well. So uh, it's a great to have you on my little show, How They Love Mary, and to talk about this new book, Jesus the Master Psychologist. And it's an interesting concept for me to kind of wrap my mind around, partly because I'm not in the psychology world. And so you're going to offer insights that I probably have never considered before. But of course, when I think of Jesus, I think of Jesus as a teacher, Jesus as the high priest, as the good shepherd. Those are books that maybe I could write, Jesus, son of Mary, that'd be another one as a Marian theologian. But here you are, a psychologist, and you look to Jesus now as the master psychologist. What do you mean by that? How is Jesus this master psychologist? Father, one of the dumbest things that people can say about Jesus, and this shows their ignorance of what he said, is that he was a good man. That cannot be. If somebody comes into my office, and for one hour, they've been brought in by a relative, because the relative thinks they're becoming delusional, they're becoming psychotic. And for one hour, they hold it together. They seem clear to me. They make sense. I see no real problem here. At the end of the hour, I ask, anything else you want to tell me? Uh, yeah. Uh, did you know I'm God? Now, <clears throat> that in psychological parlance is what's called a delusion. It's a into the face of reality with no reasoning Get rid of it. Jesus said he was God. Now, if we say he didn't say that, then we got a problem. Because we are saying he's a good teacher on what basis? On the basis of what he said. But he also said he was God. Now, you got to take a whole package. So if Jesus is God, and this is the beginning premise of the whole book, if he is God, if he is who he said he is, and we have evidence that pretty strongly indicates that, then you have to listen to him. Because whether he agrees with modern psychology or whether he turns modern psychology on its head, he is truth. So it would be better for me to live by what he says than what modern psychology says if it disagrees with him. On the other hand, Father, there's been a lot of places where modern psychology is coming around to realize he knew what he was talking about. 
Yeah, as you're speaking, kind of what just came to mind as Jesus as God, you know, goes back to what C.S. Lewis says. Jesus was either a lunatic or a liar, or he is who he says he is. And, And that's exactly what you're saying there. How do you see the interplay of religion with psychology? Because I would think that sometimes, uh, especially modern psychology, uh, which we should say you're a Catholic psychologist, you adhere to all the teachings of the church, but there are psychologists out there today who are constantly trying to defend the immorality of of the world today. That say, you know, psychologically, a person has a a gay gene, or they're they they grew up this way. They this is all they know. So they try to authenticate some. Of these uh, the moral pervasiveness uh, of our time. So, how can religion inform psychology? Psychology focuses on the self. If there was one word underpinning so much of what psychology says and does and adheres to, it is the self. Whether it's the authentic self, whether it's self-image whether it's self-assertiveness, whether it's self-confidence, whether it is self in every other way. Jesus says, you must not put yourself first. Now, wait a minute. Who's right? On one hand, psychology says, seek the self. That is the, that is the goal of true psychological health. Jesus says, no. The goal of true psychological health is to be meek, is to esteem others more highly than yourself. St. Paul said that. Jesus, I think, would no doubt agree. And he said, you must be like a child. He says, you must seek to be meek. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. I mean, everywhere through what Jesus is saying, that the true peace and, I would say, psychological well-being comes from not being focused on the self. Well, how does that work? Interestingly enough, in the 70s, the self-movement really, really got started. Self-image was everything, and if you had a high self-image, you were going to get better grades in school, and you were less likely to use drugs, and you're going to be a happier person, and you're going to have less mosquito bites, and your hair's not going to fall out, and you're going to have less planter's warts on your foot. And the research has come out and basically said, Father, uh, you know, self-image isn't related to a whole lot. As a matter of fact, it can become a detriment to your health because if you seek self-image for its own sake, you tend to get self-centered. And when you get self-centered, you get obnoxious. And when you get obnoxious, people don't want to be around you. So the dominoes start to fall. Jesus was right. Jesus, in his teachings in the scriptures, you know, he tells us how to live. He commands us. He, he teaches us. And so we've listened to his teachings all throughout these years. But not only was he a teacher, you make the point in your book that really he also shows us how to live. And one of the ways you you show this is through his humility, that Jesus shows us how to live our life. What are some of the other ways that you've seen Jesus showing us how to live kind of our most authentic life? You want me to distill it down to the vernacular and the colloquial? Shut your mouth. I would say... If I were to gather all the people that I've offended in some way in my life in one place, I would probably need a stadium for a group apology. And most of my offending them has come from my mouth. My mouth has said things. 
it has impugned them. It has argued with them. It has gotten sarcastic. It has put them, it's my mouth that has caused my problem. And Jesus said, if you can control your mouth as a first step, you can eliminate not only an awful lot of the bad stuff you do, but a lot of your own regrets from a psychological perspective. You don't have the guilt. You don't have to apologize as often. You don't, you don't provoke. You don't ruin relationships. Most relationships are ruined because of the mouth. That's the way it is. There's no question about that. Jesus says, you better control that mouth. You know what else he said? This is fascinating. One of the biggest things I have to deal with in therapy, Father, is lack of insight. People come to me, and they'll say, for various reasons, my life's a mess. I'm not happy. Uh, my relationships are friction-filled. Uh, I don't know what's going on. If they don't have at least a smidgen of insight to look at themselves and to acknowledge what they've been doing, therapy's going to go nowhere. Jesus said, you got to get the log out of your own eye. And it's interesting that he used the word log, because a log completely blocks you. He doesn't say, get the log out of your own eye to get the log out of the other person's eye. He says, get the log out of your own eye to get the speck out of the other person's eye. Wait a minute, Jesus, what are you saying here? Are you saying that I am more blind to who I am as opposed to that person is blind to who they are? Oh, wait a minute. I don't agree with that. I see myself a lot better than they see themselves. Jesus says, no, you don't. Now, that's an uncomfortable realization, and people don't like it. But here's, here is the reward. I have noticed as a therapist, the more people are willing to look at themselves, the better they get more quickly. That's the key. I think that's what confession does. When I was in the evangelical world, I didn't go to confession for eight years. How often did I look at myself? How often did I say, what am I doing that offends God? What do I need to fix? I didn't. When I went back to the church and I went back to confession, uh-oh, now i got to start looking at me. Well, that ain't good. I don't like that. But then I realized the more I look at me, the more likely I am to become content and at peace, believe it or not. I really love what you said there about shut your mouth. And, you know, it's funny because all of these podcast episodes I do, all these conversations I have, there's always something that I take away. That's what I hope the listeners take away, that there's something that really informs their life, really can help them not only today as they listen, but something they begin to implement. And I, I love that. Shut your mouth and then you'll have less to apologize for. And I know myself that I've had to apologize for harsh words or things that I've said. So so that, that is wonderful advice. And really, too, that comes from the teachings of Jesus, too. Not only shut your mouth, but what you say. He says that from the depths of your heart, the mouth will speak. So if we put in good things, virtuous things, if we root ourselves in scripture and spiritual reading and watch wholesome things on television, well, then we're going to say those things because that's how we've trained ourselves. And so that's a wonderful wisdom that you offer us. There's a corollary to that, Father. Most of what I've said that I regret comes from the first 10 or 15 seconds of my emotional surge. When I feel this almost overwhelming drive to say what I want to say, I, they, they deserve a comeback. 
okay, they deserve to be set straight. I better clear the air. Much of that comes from the first overwhelming emotional surge. If I can train myself, and I can ask God to help me, to shut my mouth during that surge, it is much, much easier to not say it after about 15, 20 seconds. I have a little more head control over my heart. Jesus said, out of the heart comes things like, and he listed a list of all the things that come out. One of the things as a psychologist that you see over and over again is that people rehearse their anger. They rehearse their judgmentalness. They rehearse their upset. They rehearse their hurt. They rehearse their agitation. They rehearse their frustration. They rehearse their retaliation. It, it foments in their head. It just cycles and cycles and cycles and cycles and cycles. And as it does, it gains momentum, takes root, and they look for the first opportunity to express it. Mm. That rehearsal is where it starts. And if you continue to rehearse all of the put-upon feelings that you have, there's a real good chance they're going to come out. Yeah, you know, I can even just think about myself, like sometimes you're just like repeating the story, you tell as many people, and even if you've already told them, you begin to repeat it again, and you always keep bringing it up, like, you know, this is what so-and-so did to me, and this is how they hurt me, and so I, I guess there com there needs to come that point where we accept the past, we seek the forgiveness, and we say, I'm no longer going to live with this, I need to go beyond this, so that Jesus says, I I've come to set people free, so we want to be set free free and liberated from from all of these different feelings and emotions the as you mentioned kind of the rehearsal so uh that's something that i know that i need to work on probably and hopefully others begin to realize this and and take those steps then to work through that jesus said when peter asked him how many times am i supposed to forgive my brother peter said seven times which was well above what the rabbis of the time said rabbi said three strikes and you're out so Peter, I guess, was trying to show off. He's trying to say, hey, Jesus, you know, I'm getting this mercy stuff here seven times, huh? Well, Jesus more or less corrected him, put him in his place, 70 times seven. Now, that's not 490, that's completely. However, from a psychological perspective, I believe, Father, I don't have to forgive 70 times seven. As a matter of fact, I think... If anything, I forgive maybe half that or less, and here's why. Much of my offense that I take is not offense. It's a misinterpretation in my mind. I have impugned somebody's motives, which was not their motives. I've misinterpreted what they said. They didn't mean that. They didn't mean to sarcastically strike out at me. They, they, they didn't mean that. There was, there was something else going on here. So what happens is I feel myself pretty magnanimous because I've decided, well, I'll tell you what, I'll forgive them. Isn't that holy of me? But in fact, there was nothing to forgive. It was in my head. There was no offense. I took offense. It was hanging solidly in psychological midair. 
There was nothing there for me to forgive. So in fact, I've come to the conclusion, Father, that I don't have to forgive anywhere near as much as I thought I had to forgive because the misinterpretation was mine. Hmm. Wow. One of the so we're talking really about judging as well, how we've judged others, maybe how others judged us, and you actually call that the J word. You say judging is the J word. So how do we respond to ourselves as we judge others? How do we stop judging lest we be judged? I had a Bible study in a jail for several years. I heard the stories of these guys. None of them had an upbringing even close to my own. They didn't have two parents. They didn't have loving parents. They weren't taught about God. If anything, they were taught the exact opposite. So they did things, horrible things sometimes. And I look at them, and I thought to myself, how would I have behaved if I were raised in those circumstances? Now, I'm not saying that what they did wasn't wrong. It was. But to judge their blameworthiness is not my place. That's God. They were in jail for what they did. That's understandable. But for me to look at those guys and say, you know what, you're a pathetic piece of dog poop, is that makes my sin maybe greater than theirs. Why did Jesus reserve, Father, his most scolding words for the religious leaders? What was it about them that he talked more harshly to than anybody else he came across? What was it? Boy, I'm waiting for your answer. Their spiritual elitism. Oh, yeah. They were the superior holy ones in God's sight lofty. Now, what makes that sin so great? Because, Father, if I say to you, you know, Father, I can, uh, I can bench press more than you can. Okay, <laughs> big deal. <laughs> in this relatively little sliver of life's abilities, I can out-bench press you. So what? Okay, but if I say, you know, Father, God likes me more than he likes you. Because I'm holier than you. I'm more pious. I'm closer to God than you are. You know that, Father? And uh, you better realize that. That Now that takes it to an infinitely nasty level. Because I am declaring my value in God's eyes over you. Ooh! Boy, that's ugly. That's really ugly. Okay? The other thing is this. People in our culture who adhere to traditional beliefs... Christian morals are getting slammed. There's no question about that. They're getting the J word thrown at them. Don't you judge me. Who are you to judge? And I think as Christians, we have to recognize that we're going to, we're going to judge. I mean, that has to be. We've got, we got to know right from wrong. We've got to do that. And in our culture, that is no longer understood. Most people cannot separate out the fact that I can think what you're doing is wrong, but I love you anyway. They, can't, they cannot carry those two ideas in their head. It's what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. On the other hand, they know how we treat them. If we treat them like we love them. Let me give you an everyday example, Father. Many of your listeners 
are older parents who have adult young children living with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They don't know how to handle that. Do I, do I welcome the boyfriend into our mm. house? Do I welcome the girlfriend into our house? What do I do? I don't want to condone what they're doing. And I say to them, you're not condoning what they're doing. They know how you stand. You raised her for 20 years. She knows what you believe. Nevertheless, you have to love that boyfriend. And you have to somehow welcome him as best you can. Because that is the only way you will have any chance to show them the Christian side of love. When our Lord ate with tax collectors and prostitutes, you know, Father, as well as I do, that was the ultimate in fellowship to eat with somebody. It wasn't just, yeah, we went through the drive-thru and your car was in front of me, so I had a meal behind you. No, 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 no. This was fellowship. What was he doing? Why didn't he tell him, I'm not going to eat with you if you do that? Why didn't he do that? He didn't. So, of course, he wanted him to change. But he knew that the only way to get him to change was to love them where they were and try to move them. And that's what I tell parents. I say, you, you can't write your kids off like that. I always use this example, Father. I say, okay, let's find, let's say that there's someone in your life. Let's say your brother-in-law, your brother. Your brother got married to a woman who had been divorced. And they got married in a non-denominational church. He was raised Catholic, but for the most part, he knew he couldn't get married in a Catholic church, so he married her. All right. Now, you're having a real tough time with this because you view that as an adulterous relationship, okay? Here's the problem. What if your other brother-in-law says, I hate my wife's mother's guts. I don't want to talk to her. I can't stand her in my life. And if it was legal, I'd take her out. Well, that's mm. a pretty serious sin, why don't you write him off too then? Are you just going to select which sins you decide to have a problem with? See, I've heard very, very few people say, I'm not going to associate with this relative because he hates his father's guts, which is a horrid sin. But, but I, I, I won't associate with him because he's dating some lady now after his divorce. Well, well wait, okay, what you, you're picking and choosing. Sure. And, you know, with divorce, and this was one of the things you bring up in your book, you actually have it under the chapter, The Hardest Teaching of Jesus. And for me, I would think the hardest teaching of Jesus would be, you know, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That's a hard teaching for us to do that. But but you actually look at the divorce issue, that the Catholic Church's strong, you know, belief on marriage as being one of the most difficult teachings of Jesus. So could you maybe just explain a bit more how it is so difficult? Comments mindset right now in our culture is you can't expect people to live unhappy. You can't expect them to stay committed in a miserable or, or what they see as a miserable situation. Now that is, that is the indisputable rationale that is now present. And it's not human nature to do that, to live within a bad situation. You got to get out so that yourself is happy. Okay. Father, do you have any idea what the divorce rate in our culture was in 1960? 1960. I'm going to guess 25%. Under five. Under five. Wow. 
So, apparently, human nature was very different 60 years ago. Because somehow, people managed to live within these marriages 60 years ago. And furthermore, there's research coming out now that says if you persevere in a marriage that you think is unsalvageable or unhappy, and by the way, roughly 80% of marriages end up because I don't like you anymore. That's the main reason. Not necessarily because of pathology where one partner has to be protected from the other. It is, I don't like you. I don't get along with you. You're not appealing to me. Uh, I've, quote, unquote, grown out of love with you, etc. See that in my office all the time. So the research kind of says that if you persevere in something like that, there's a decent chance it's going to get better. Do you know who is most likely to stomp out of my office, Father? This will surprise you. Um, I, I would probably guess. Uh, I don't know if I have a right guess. Uh, since we're talking about divorce, I'm going to say a parent of someone getting divorced. No. It is. Now, it hasn't happened that often, but it has happened. It is the holier spouse who comes in and says, I'm very discontent in my marriage. My spouse is not all that religious. I take the faith much more seriously than he or she does. And they, they really need to come around so we can have a good, intimate marriage. And if I, if I, at some point in the therapy, imply that they are operating out of a very different set of principles, if they believe the faith as they say they do, then they would be more loving, more forgiving, more serving, more tolerant, more easy to get along with than their spouse. They would. They can't expect their spouse to act by their virtues because their spouse doesn't follow those virtues. They don't want to hear that. Sure. I'm, I'm the good one. He or she's not. How dare you? You've totally misread the whole situation. They're the one that needs to change, not me. And they, I've had one crumple up a check, throw it on my desk, and walk out never to come back. I've had it more than once. But that is the truth. And, and I always say this. I say, if you want to change your spouse, change you first. No matter what, change you first. I do all the changing. I'm the one who apologizes. I'm the nice one. I'm the good one. I'm the one who already does that. And you're telling me to change. He needs to change. Well, certainly that's true. But if, if you're saying, I'm the more discontent one in this marriage, then the only way to get that other person to change, I mean, you've been, you've been trying to beat them into changing for the last 27 years, is to start looking at yourself, where can I live my faith better? And unless you live with Satan, chances are real high that person's going to slowly come around a little bit. They may not be the most wonderful spouse in the world, but they're going to be better than they are now. And that's the truth that Jesus says, and that's the truth that a lot of people just have one heck of a time believing. You've just shared a little bit about someone coming to you as a psychologist, and they share their problems with you. And we're talking about Jesus, the master psychologist. And I, I would like to think that in a way we look to Jesus in that way in our own personal prayer, that we come to Jesus, 
We say, these are the problems I'm facing in my life. I give them over to you. We pray before the Blessed Sacrament. We go to adoration. We talk to the Lord, however it is that we do it. But in a sense, we're saying, Lord, these are my problems, and I'm looking to you for help. Just as a person would go to a psychologist and say, these are the issues I'm facing. How can you guide me? How can you help me? So we're looking to the divine source, to Jesus, the master psychologist here. We're asking him to kind of diagnose our issue. A psychologist facilitates healing. Maybe sometimes they have to prescribe medication for a person, or maybe they give some exercises for a person to do to work through healing. So I guess I'm just looking at this idea then of Jesus in this way. And so we bring to him our issues. Let's say, you know, you have a mother wound or a father wound that your father left or your mother was abusive or whatever the case might be. So you're bringing that, the past, to Jesus now when you're asking him for that healing. So how do we do this, I guess? How do we turn to Jesus in this role as the master psychologist? Jesus wants a humble prayer. And a humble prayer is not focused on the self. The humble prayer doesn't say, fix that other person, fix that situation. The uh, the humble prayer says, if this is the way it is, help me to see where I am either making this worse or where I, I need to change how I think so that I can make this better. Show me what I can do. Yeah, it's nice to pray for to pray for another person's change of heart. We all do that. But I think if we leave out the part that says, show me what I need to do differently, I don't see it. Mm. That's, I think, the best prayer. Sure. Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah, I think that's very helpful. As we sort through the issues of our own life, we say, Lord... Show me how you want me to respond. How do you want me to live out of this? To Show me how you want to heal me. So those are beautiful prayers. And, and uh, when we go to Mass on Sunday, we can pray as we're sitting there before Mass starts, bringing to him all these cares, all these worries, all these concerns. So Jesus is the master psychologist. That's Dr. Ray Gurendi's new book from Sophia Institute Press. Jesus not only is the master psychologist, he's also the son of Mary and Joseph, And just uh, as a way to quickly close the show, I I always ask guests a few questions about their own Marian devotion. And um, the first question I always ask is, do you have a favorite title for the Blessed Mother? I always call her Dear Lady. Sure. Dear Lady. Yeah, very affectionate. And uh, one of the ways we often seek the intercession of Mary is through the rosary. And I think lots of people, they want to pray the rosary, but they struggle praying it. They think that it's repetitive or whatever. Is there anything that you've done that has helped you pray the rosary better? Any tip you could offer? G.K. Chesterton said, if anything is worth praying, it's worth praying poorly. So the first thing to do is to not beat yourself up because in one rosary you said four decent hail marys and one good glory be okay you did it good enough a lot of times what i do father is because my mind drifts all over the place i when i we had 10 kids and that was the number we had because we wanted to have each kid to say a hail mary at a decade i always lost my place 
I would always, when it would come to my turn, I'd say, glory be, and one of the kids would go, no, Dad, it's another Hail Mary. Oh, okay. And it got to be a laughing joke. But one of the things I do when, I, when I'll say the rosary or I'll listen to the rosary on tape, and I hear, Hail Mary, full of grace, and I'll think, full of grace, full of grace. As the prayer goes on, I just kind of focus on that one statement, you know, or go, Holy Mary, Mother of God, Holy Mary, Holy Mary, dear Holy Mary. You know, and the rest of the rosary goes on, the rest of the prayer goes on, but I'm focusing on that one space. That helps me. Uh, that helps me sustain my attention a little better. There are lots of apparitions of the Blessed Mother. Is there one that you have a fondness for, one that uh, might be your favorite? I'd probably say Fatima. Fatima most most pleases me, and it most perplexes me. So, you know, as, as I look at Fatima, and some pretty powerful evidence that that was legit, um, there was some, there's some things about it that scare me. I mean, where Our Lady showed the vision of the souls dropping into hell, that's scary. That's really scary. I don't, I don't like to think that. Okay? Or when she says, pray the rosary every day. I don't pray the rosary every day. I pray it most days. Some days I don't. You know? And so with my scrupulosity, I think, ah, geez, I'm being disobedient. You know? But I, I keep trudging forward. Sure. And lastly, there are a lot of books about the Blessed Mother. Maybe you've read a few. Uh, is there any book about Mary that you would recommend to others? Oh, Van Father, no, I don't feel I don't feel confident enough to say that because what appealed to me may not appeal to others. Sure, you know, I think it's just a matter of of checking them out and seeing what resonates with you and what, what sinks in. I've had people recommend books to me that I've read and thought, oh, that, that just seems kind of, kind of bland, kind of uh, cliche, you know, and then others that <clears throat> nobody's even talked about that I've stumbled across somewhere. And I thought, that's a lot of insight there. I like Peter Kreis books. I really do. I like his rational approach to it very much. Sure. He's very good that way. Yeah, he's a great writer. And uh, it's funny you mentioned that about recommending books, right? Because here we are. We're talking about your book, Jesus, the Master Psychologist. We're recommending it to people today. It's a different take, a different approach on who Jesus is. We can talk a lot about what we call as the formal discipline of Christology and kind of understanding who Jesus is and his divinity and who he is as teacher and all of these things throughout the Gospels. But but here we have this real approach of looking at Jesus uh, and asking him and looking at him in terms of our real-life problems and how he has the solutions for them today as the master psychologist. So I'd like to thank you so much, Dr. Ray, for being with me today on How They Love Mary. Thank you, Father. If they want to go to the book, they can go to EWTNRCCatalog.com, or they can go to my website, DrRay.com. I have 17 other books I've written there. Maybe some of them will resonate with them. That's great. You know, I just uh, actually, a parishioner was in the sacristy and said, do you have any 
book recommendations on parenting. And I said, well, I don't know any off the top of my head. I said, there are two that I know of. One was a person I interviewed, a friend of mine as well, um, uh, about the Beatitudes of parenting. But then I said, Dr. Ray, I'm sure, Dr. Ray Gurendi has a lot of books about parenting, I bet. So you should check out him and see what he has to offer. So uh, I did recommend you earlier uh, to one of my parishioners just a few days ago. As their penance, right, Father? <laughs> no, it was not in the confessional. <laughs> so, well, great. Well, thanks so much. It's been a joy to speak with you today. Anytime, Father. Thank you.